Hello, I'm Eric Holderman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by Unearth, a dynamic field operations platform equipping field responders with simple digital tools to capture in-field damage instantly, tracking incidents and sharing actionable information seamlessly all in one place on any device. Visit unearthlabs.com to learn more. That's U-N-E-A-R-T-H-L-A-B-S dot com, Unearth Labs. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Keith Kroc, an American businessman, former diplomat, and economist. He is the former chairman and CEO of DocuSign. And by the way, from our guests, I just sold my house and I did a DocuSign uh, agreement on that. And he has been recognized for his work in business-to-business commerce and digital transaction management. He's held leadership positions with Angie's List and General Motors. Formerly, he was chairman of the Board of Trustees for Purdue University. University. And lastly, he serves as the Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment in the last presidential administration. And he was unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate for that position. But in this podcast, we're gonna be discussing a wide variety of technologies that are important to our future as a nation. And welcome to the show, Keith. And if it's okay, I'll just call you Keith during the show. That sounds great, Eric. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for making time for this podcast. And I I, I wanna start out with their Keith Kroc, you recently launched the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue University. What were you hoping to be the product of this institute that bears your name? Well, simply put, Eric, it would be that technology advances freedom because the reality we face as a nation and, and really as a free world is one of seemingly ceaseless, intense variations of uh, weaponized uh, cyber uh, warfare. And our rivals are playing the long game. They're playing for keeps. They're playing a game of four-dimensional military, economic, and diplomatic and cultural chess. And and technology is at the intersection uh, of all those. And, you know, what's worse, they have very little respect for... uh, things like rule of law, uh, property of all kinds, sovereignty of nations, uh, human rights, uh, the environment. And so, uh, you know, this came out of our work at the United States State Department when I was running U.S. economic uh, diplomacy Um, because we could see what uh, China was doing from an aggression standpoint and now you can see that uh, with Russia. So what, and when I went to the United States State Department, Eric, I brought in uh, 12 folks from Silicon Valley. These were results-oriented execs, entrepreneurs, technologists, um, because what we practice out in Silicon Valley is basically economic warcraft because it's all about being the category king. If you're the category king, you get 80% of the resources, 80% of the market cap except we played by the rules because if you don't have your integrity, you don't have anything. Um, And these are things that aren't taught at the United States State Department or the Treasury or trade or even the DOD or commerce. Um, And so we brought this team in, combined it with some of the greatest foreign service officers and civil service I could ever imagine. Um, and, And we put together what we call the Global Economic Security Strategy. Uh, and that was uh, for the purpose of driving economic growth, maximize national security, and combating uh, economic aggression. Uh, and we had some great successes doing that. So this is a continuation of that mission. 
Okay, and I, we're going to get into some of the details about some of those new technologies here as we go through this today. Specifically, that the Croc Institute is going to um, try, try and provide leadership on. So, on that one, one of the things that I want to do a deeper dive into uh, is artificial intelligence, and it's almost become a little bit of a marketing name. Everybody says, well, we're using artificial intelligence. And then I'm, again, not a digital expert at all, but you dive into it. Well, how much of this is really AI as it's commonly referred to? Uh, so how do you determine or how do you define AI and how much of AI actually exists today or is more of this where we want to go? You know, for me, I always think about like robots uh, and developing intelligence. And so there's self-learning, self-teaching. To me, that's AI. I, I, you perhaps have a better definition for it. No, and is it, is it yeah, real or not real today? Yeah, it's, it's real. There's no question about it. Eric, you have it right. It's, it is the use of massive amounts of data uh, to make all kinds of predictions, determine all kinds of things whether it's manufacturing processes, you know, robots is a great example. Uh, uh, I was in the robotics business, you know, way back when it was super high tech back in the, in the eighties, it's used for things like uh, credit scores, you know, in China it's used for their social credit scores. It's used in uh, military applications, the practice of warfare. It's used a lot in terms of scientific progress, like uh, molecular modeling and those kind of things. Um, and it's used a, a lot in terms of facial recognition, things that authoritarian regimes like China and Russia uh, use to repress freedom of their, of their own citizens. And they're, and they're exporting uh, those technologies to other authoritarian states. Um, so it can be used for good or it could be used uh, for bad. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, you probably hear a lot these days about uh, governance structures and processes that need to be put in place to ensure accountability tra and transparency uh, and to make sure to maximize AI's benefits for society and minimize the risks. And, you know, I, I know you've looked at China. I saw some of your resume uh, on that. And, you know, one of the big things about China, uh, in Russia, they have a lot of criminal organizations trying to make money off the United States, you know, for colonial pipeline, hacking type of thing, ransomware attacks. China appears down the intellectual espionage, if you'll, trying to steal our trade secrets, but they're also going after, after our data. And you mentioned the importance of data in AI, you want to comment about how do you think they're planning to use all the data? They want health data on Eric Holdeman. Uh, how are they planning to use this health data or any data that they're collecting uh, from around the world, but and specifically targeting the United States also? Yeah. Is there I mean, an AI component to that? Yeah, I'm, and you're absolutely right. China's the biggest intellectual uh, uh, thief by a country mile, you know, just on 60 Minutes on Sunday, I saw the FBI director, Ray, he talked about how China's intellectual property theft uh, is like double all the rest of the world uh, combined. And stealing data is a big part of it. You know, they have a thing that they call the Great China Firewall. I call it the Great China One-Way Firewall because all the data comes in for their own purposes that they use for military applications. They use for social credit scores. They use it to, to track Americans. Um, and then reciprocally, uh, that great one-way China firewall, all the propaganda goes out, but the truth doesn't come in uh, for, their, for their own people. So this data, uh, this is the key uh, to AI. And so China's using it for all kinds of uh, malign purposes. A big part of it is also uh, genetics. You know, I was also responsible for infectious diseases uh, at the State Department. Uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that all roads lead to the 
Wuhan lab. And, you know, these are some of the things that they, they work on. Um, Eric, look, I've been going to China since 1981. I'm a lover of Chinese history, Chinese culture, uh, Chinese food, certainly, uh, and the Chinese people. Uh, and when I was running DocuSign, when we were up to about 500 million unique users, by the way, thanks for buying your house with DocuSign. Yeah. I, never I, I had no choice, hands. but. I mean, we would always give our, our customers bear hugs, you know, yeah, and yeah. when we were starting out 15 years ago. Now we, there's a billion users, but that's a lot of bear hugs. But nevertheless, um, uh, so I went there on my last trip uh, to China uh, because, as you know, the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party, uh, because of our successes in terms of combating their technological authoritarianism, authoritarianism sanctioned uh, my family uh, and me. I'm an enemy of the state there. I was just doing my job serving the country. But... Uh, you know, what I saw over there was their market competition turn into amped up aggression. I saw their drone swarm technology, which, by the way, is driven uh, by AI. And um, when I, uh, as I was coming back on the, the plane, I, you know, I never served in government before. I really didn't know any, any real government officials. I go, you know, I wonder if the guys in Washington know about this because the best technology wins the war. And I went out and, you know, I got in a meeting. They go, Keith, have you ever thought about serving your country? I go, that's a dream I never knew I had. I'd be honored. And he said, can you move? I go, I can move anywhere in the world. You know, it was the fastest decision I ever made, but the best one. And what I saw at the United States State Department was beyond my imagination. And I had experience, uh, intellectual property theft when I was running this company uh, called Ariba, where we invented B2B e-commerce 25 years ago. It's now 3.7 trillion transactions go through it on an annual basis. And Alibaba actually stole our intellectual property. Uh, I, I saw all kinds of things uh, when I was the vice president of General Motors, but, um, you know, it's beyond my imagination. And what, and what I saw at the State Department is China has no regard for human life. And their two goals are regime preservation and global world domination. Uh, and, you know, uh, July, i never forget July 4th, 2020, I was on TV and I was the first government official to call out the genocide in Xinjiang and what they're doing there. So these are bad guys. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting, Eric, I, I have 10 year old twins and for them to see what's going on, for example, into Ukraine and to see that people are, will, uh, you know, you, you have to fight to keep your freedom and people are willing to put their lives on the line. That's how precious it is. And that's also how fragile it is because, you know, this, this, this democracy, this freedom we have is a 250 year old experiment. And it goes against all the natural order of things. The natural right. order is it's the bad king, the dictator, and the emperor, and you got to fight every day to keep it. Yeah, it's it's a precious resource we don't necessarily recognize because we have it, and uh, that's why if you see Ukraine, it's really inspirational uh, to many people because they understand what's what's on the line there. So and, you've done a wonderful job on no acronyms, but you did say Alibaba, and when I go to uh, Starbucks and they say name, I'll tell them Alibaba. So that I figure there aren't more than one Alibaba in the store. So what's Alibaba for those who might not know? Alibaba is the Amazon of China. Okay, yeah, that's big, big business, right? Big business. I, we could talk a lot about <laughs> China here because I know the current regime is tracking, uh, really uh, cracking down on these big, private sector efforts like Alibaba that really spun up. So I'm, I, I'm just interested, what, what do you have to say about that, where they're politically cracking down on these and not giving them as much freedom, it appears. Is this just the dictatorship aspect coming out? Or Well, yeah, so uh, General Secretary Xi, he looks at these tech companies are becoming so powerful. They're a threat to his power. And the other thing is that, you know, at one point, 
they're moving more towards uh, democracy and capitalism and and good governance and respect for rule of law. They've totally moved away from that. And, you know, I had a chance to see it firsthand over the last three years. It really accelerated um, during the pandemic. So now literally every Chinese company is is run by the government. And any I think it's any company over 50 people, you have to have representatives from the Chinese Communist Party. And understand, there's 1.2 billion Chinese that are not part of that elite Chinese Communist Party. It's literally right out of Animal Farm. You know, everybody's equal, but some are more equal than others. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, let's let's move on to technology. This one, I'm really interested in what you have to say, because one of the things that your institute you're going to be promoting is hypersonics. And the only thing I've heard that associated with are these new missile technology that you know Russia has been uh, using. I know uh, China is accused of also having, but is there something more to hypersonics uh, other than missile technology? Well, right now it's primarily used militarily. Uh, and you know what hypersonic weaponry does is it basically scrambles the equation. You know, and, you, and I think you saw it that recently Russia used hypersonic missiles in the Ukraine, uh, you know, with a conventional warhead. It can also be used for nuclear weaponry. And hy- hypersonic missiles greatly reduce the warning time a country has to respond and may evade, you know, defenses. It can literally take out an aircraft carrier. So it's an asymmetric weapon. Um, and, you know, Russia and China are actually a little bit ahead of us. We're catching up fast. Uh, Purdue, as a matter of fact, just got a $500 million grant from Rolls-Royce for hypersonics research uh, in development. And, um, you know, these uh, these technologies is going to be used also for good, obviously, out in space in terms of satellite sensors, other technologies. Um, and uh, But this is really a very, very strategic technology and that's why uh you know at purdue uh we're teamed up with rolls royce and other uh industry partners okay is it the engine that makes it um hypersonic yeah so it makes it go really really fast and it can fly really really low it can go really high then drop down so it's really you know it's really hard to shoot it down basically Yeah, it, it changes the whole uh, anti-missile missile system uh, that's been developed to date. Okay, what about um, synthetic biology? Now, I could guess up about this, but I'd rather have you explain what synthetic biology is. Yeah, so synthetic biology, kind of what it sounds like, it really applies engineering principles to biology with the goal of creating and redesigning biological components and also systems that don't exist in the natural world. Um, So it's almost, you think of it also as artificial biology, I guess, and advances in DNA synthesis are being used to develop uh, advanced biofuels, bioproducts, renewable chemicals, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, fine chemicals, food ingredients, all that kind of stuff. Um, And developments in the synthetic biology area bring the potential for accidental or intentional release of pathogens and genetically modified organisms, you know, with implications for natural boundaries. Perfect example is, uh, you know, in the uh, Wuhan lab where they were doing the gain of function uh, over there, which really uh, created this, for the first time, a stealth virus that uh, led to the pandemic. Okay. And um, back in 2020, I, I also blog. I did 400 blog posts just on the pandemic, much more on the application, what was going on, you know, the unknown part uh, of this. Uh, was it an accidental release based on what you know? Type of thing where uh, people were exposed in the lab and then entered into society? Or Yeah, I think that's our best guess is that you know, maybe it got on a shirt sleeve or something like that. We think it was an accidental release, but we definitely know it came from the lab. You, you know, where 
originally uh, some people were trying to uh, make it that it didn't come from China. Yeah, well, the wet animals or, and all those kind of things. You right, find so. you find the animals in usually about the first six months, uh, but uh, enough documentation exists that you could see it. But nevertheless, the Chinese Communist Party destroyed all the initial records. They uh, destroyed the alpha virus. They wouldn't let anybody come in to see it. Not even to this day. Um, and you know, massive spread of, of disinformation. You know, my personal feeling is, yeah, all roads lead to Wuhan. The emperor has no clothes and it's incumbent on him now, since he won't let anybody in there uh, to prove that it didn't come from Wuhan, because we certainly uh, know that it did. Okay. Um, Rare earth minerals is something else that the Kroc Institute is going to be pursuing. And um, I guess one of the things uh, in my day job that includes uh, five states, five Canadian provinces and territories, you know, mining is really a big business in Canada. And it's for rare earth minerals as part of that thing. But it would appear that the United States, that's another area where China went to Africa and, and uh, wrapped up leases or contracts to uh, get more of these rare earth minerals, if you will, under contract to them. What, what are you looking to do with Institute and Rare Earth Minerals? Well, if you, if you look at rare earth minerals, what's called rare earth minerals, with a few exceptions, they're really not that rare. Okay. But, but the, the reason why China has a lock on it is, is not because of the mining. It's because they have the processing plants, uh, because you get these rare earth minerals and, and you process them. Um, and the, the, this is uh, an area they, they've targeted for over 20 years. Matter of fact, one of the most critical uh, uh, minerals, definitely not a rare earth mineral, is polysilicon. Polysilicon uh, is what computer chips are made out of. Uh, and about 10% polysilicon goes there. The other 90% goes into solar panels. Polysilicon is the essence sand. And this is what China has an absolute lock on. They control about uh, 60 or 80% of the polysilicon manufacturing. And they, and they manufacture, and, and, and this is a very energy intensive business. So are solar panels, where a solar panel, the amount of energy it puts out in three years is the amount of energy you need to manufacture a solar panel. Oh. And, that's, and that's why they're made in a region in China called Xinjiang, and that's where they do the uh, Uyghur Muslim genocide, and they use slave labor for that. It's also in that region is their coal region, and that's where they have the two biggest coal-fired power plants in the world. So what they're doing is they're, they're, they, they basically put United States and Germany out of the solar panel business by using slave labor and, uh, and dirty coal energy plants. Well, that's, that's not an option for us. So uh, how do you see rare earth minerals in your work helping to correct some of that unbalance, if, if that's part of the goal? Well, I think, yeah, it's certainly part of the goal. Because if you look, and let's just stick with the solar business for a second. If you look at what the uh, industry experts are saying, Eric, that by uh, 2050, 50 to 60% of our energy will be uh, solar. So what that means, if we don't do something about that in terms of building our own capabilities, we'll be dependent on China for uh, a big part of our energy. And you know, if there's anything, yeah, and I was also responsible for energy outside the United States, you know, uh, energy security is national security. Wars are begun and they're lost because of energy. I mean, you, you could see in Ukraine, you know, the leverage that Russia has because they're oil and gas production and, and their reserves. So we have to do something about it. We don't want to be dependent on, on China uh, for that. That, that, would, that would put us in a real dangerous position. Um, and these rare, uh, these rare earth minerals, what we need to do is we need to build processing plants uh, in the United States, because what happened over the years is that 
China, here's how they work. Here's how China works. First of all, they'll come in and they'll steal the, some of the intellectual property. They'll build some of their own capabilities and then they'll shut down their markets. So in other words, you can't get the economy to scale. You can't sell into China. They'll build up their own domestic business. And then what they'll do is they'll subsidize it, uh, their business when they export it. So they really just dramatically lower the price so nobody can make a profit. Then the companies get weakened. Then they come over, they either put them out of business or they buy them. And that's what has system, systematically happened over the last 20 years with, with much of this. And it's a real, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a grave threat uh, to the United States. And, you know, you, you could see that, how dependent we were in terms of pharmaceuticals. And the rare earth minerals are really strategic because you need a lot of those for the production of electric cars. And so the demand for this is absolutely soaring. And, and the batteries, right? Yeah, exactly. It's in the batteries. And so, um, you know, for, the, for things like cobalt, the stuff that is truly rare, that are in places like Africa, like the Congo, you know, what China does, they do, they lock it up. But then what they do is they rape the environment and they, they use slave labor over there. And one of the things that we did at the United States State Department is we put together a governance model in terms of mining uh, these minerals. We used a thing called the trust principle that we also utilized in terms of uh, defeating China's master plan for 5G. So do you think um, these, not necessarily third world nations, but uh, nations in Africa, China went after, you know, that kind of world domination from a business standpoint, I wanted to say, I know they didn't call it belt and subsidies, but it was the belt, world belt program or that, uh, you would know what that's One belt, one road. That's but, it, one belt, one road. You know, they're, Thank you, Eric, you know what, uh, the, the uh, I'm not gonna say what country, but I was with the prime minister over in Southeast Asia, he called it one belt, one way toll road. <laughs> so, all right, that, my question was gonna be, do you think they're catching on now that, China isn't coming in as a partner, that they're coming in to, you know, get it one way, just as you said, make it a toll road. Yeah, I, by the way, I think they're catching on to their debt trap. You know, what, what ends up happening is that China will go into these uh, nations, these low-income nations, and they'll say, hey, we'll build you this dam for $2 billion. And he'll say, you know, okay, you know, really only costs maybe about a billion. So 500 million you can use to finance your next campaign. 500 million it can go in your bank account in Liechtenstein. And, 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 and then they sign these uh, confidential agreements that if they don't pay back that money, and by the way, we saw this, for example, in Ecuador, there's regime change. Here's what it is in Ecuador. It was uh, Ecuador owes China $14 billion. If they don't pay it back on time, then China has the right to seize any asset in Ecuador other than their historical artifacts or their military. And that's classically what they've done. And so these countries are now catching on to it. And one of the things that we did during the pandemic, when it looked like a lot of these countries couldn't pay things back, is, you know, we came in to bail out these countries, but we said under the condition that you would disclose, you know, what these crazy Chinese terms are, because otherwise we're just paying off uh, China's debt. So the world is catching on. And, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we're a little bit more than actually halfway through. So we're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor and then we'll be right back with more uh, from Keith Crock. Every natural disaster is unique, but in a dynamic situation, Unearth's map-based platform helps manage complex logistics, conduct rapid damage assessments, and connect everyone to the data they need. Learn how Unearth's cloud-based software can reduce risk and response times for your team at unearthlabs.com, U-N-E-A-R-T-H 
L-A-B-F.com. And we are back and today talking with Keith Crock, American businessman. And as you've heard in the first half of this podcast, a diplomat with a lot of insights into the global economy and uh, the, the good and also, um, unfortunately, some of the bad. And the next topic is 5G and then the significance of 5G and the future of uh, 6G. I know it's at least been mentioned. A lot of people don't know what that will bring. I don't. So I hope to hear more from you on that. And I, I'm sure you can relate it back to China when you talk about 5G. I want to say it was wah or something like that that had the corner on the market that European Union was buying all their 5G equipment from the Chinese supplier. And there's a lot of concern from the US government about the security of that. So I'll let you hold forth on 5G first and this transition really to a wireless community. Sure, so you're right. So 5G is very strategic, it's advanced communications. Now it's more than a cell phone, Eric. 5G, because the speeds are so fast, can control utility grids, power systems, sanitation systems, Internet of Things, manufacturing processes. This is where uh, your companies or your citizens' most important data goes, your government's most precious secrets. And, you know, about, uh, let's see, it would be about two years ago, uh, it looked like China's national champion, Huawei, who who's the backbone of their surveillance state, enables genocide, was going to run the tables. It had been subsidized for many, many years. And, they, and this would be back in February 2020. Both sides of the aisle were hitting the panic button. U.S., uh, all U.S. government efforts uh, to stop it uh, were failing. They just announced 91 uh, 5G contracts around the world, 47 in Europe. And, uh, and this was a time when uh, we were given the authorities uh, uh, to, to make a last-ditch effort to defeat uh, China's master plan because this would mean they could control communications around the world. You could, all, you could look at this as a, a, a fifth area of uh, national security. You've got sea, land, air, space, but you also have telecommunications because it can penetrate uh, so, you know, sovereign borders. And so uh, when this happened, uh, you know, the reason why government efforts were failing was you know, the predecessors were going around, banging the table at these different countries saying, don't buy Huawei. And you know, uh, a whole bunch of us came in from the private sector. We said, you know, well, that's not working. Why don't we treat them like a customer? I mean, nobody likes to be told what to do. And we need a value proposition. The customer is always right. And if we want to partner with us, we've got to create that value proposition. And so that's what, what, what we did then is we created the Clean Network Alliance of Democracies, which is, is uh, comprised of like-minded countries, companies, and civil society that operate by a thing called the trust principle. That's what our team was uh, nominated for the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize for, because at the end of the day, we, we formed this clean network of alliance with 60 countries, 200 telcos, a whole host of industry leading companies representing two thirds of the world's global GDP. And uh, it was the first government led initiative that actually defeated China Inc. And in the process, we exposed their biggest weakness, which was trust. And that and trust was the key. So, you know, it was interesting, Eric. I know you're saying, hey, I'm not a technologist. You don't have to be a technologist. We got it because they said, hey, here's the Silicon Valley guys. And, you know, what was interesting for me is in my first 60 bilaterals meetings where I'm talking at foreign ministers, economic ministers, I would always ask my, my foreign counterparts, I'd say, hey, how's your business? you know, how's your relationship with China? They go, oh, we're really important. Uh, big trading partner. And then they look both ways, like somebody was in the room, and they go, but we don't trust them. Yeah. And okay. all of a sudden that rang bells in my head because just a year before I'd been standing up in front of, you know, all the DocuSign employees going, we're not in the software business. We're in the trust business. We deal with people's most important documents. 
those are the one you sign. And trust is the basis of every relationship, personal, business, or otherwise. You buy from people you trust. You partner with people you trust. You do business with people you trust. You love people you trust. And I'm thinking, well, 5G is the trust business by far. And we would go around and we would talk to these different uh, government leaders, CEOs of telco companies, and we would say, who are you going to trust with your citizens' most important data? Who are you going to trust with your company's proprietary information? Who are you going to trust with your government's top secrets? Is it going to be a company that comes from a country that has a National Intelligence Act that requires any company, state-owned or otherwise, or any Chinese citizen to turn over any information, data, proprietary technology upon request to the Chinese Communist Party or the PLA, which is like their version of the Gestapo, or, you know, suffer the consequence, go to the gulag, or your grandma goes to the gulag. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it was all about trust. And those trust principles were those things that I mentioned in terms of things that we honor in the free world with respect for rule of law, property, sovereignty of nations, environment, and, and human rights. And these are things that we are, and China and Russia don't. And what they do is they use it against us for their strategic advantage. So what we did there is in one jujitsu move, we use it against them for our strategic advantage. In essence, what we did is we weaponized the very principles that protect our freedoms. Okay. I, you know, I, that the customer is always right. I learned that when I sold women's shoes in Marshall Fields in Chicago. <laughs> and it's, it stood me in good stead. And uh, I've, I've shopped for make, clothes many years from uh, Nordstrom. And people say, why do you want to pay that much money? And I say, well, you get service with that. You and get you quality product and you get service and there's trust. I take any item back at any time if I have a problem with it and there's no questions asked. You so bet. I really like that. And the only thing we haven't talked about is loyalty, but we'll leave that aside because we have to keep focused on the technology aspect. What about 6G? What's, what's going to happen as 6G comes? And it's interesting, uh, two years ago, we actually were able to take a vacation to Germany. And I found out Germany never made it to um 4G, they were stuck in 3G two years ago. So what's going to happen with 6G as opposed to 5G? Well, 6G, just the bottom line means is going to go much faster. But 6G, what's going to be different about that is that it's going to be, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a good way to put it. it it's, it's going to be like how your PCs are now. So if you think about, remember when that Mac first came out and, you know, Apple made the hardware, the operating system, all the applications, everything. Yeah, right. And then, and then IBM came in and they said, well, we're just going to make the hardware. Somebody else is going to make the chip. Somebody else is going to, you know, Microsoft's going to make the operating system. Everybody's going to make all these applications. So it kind of got, you know, you have interoperability and with that allows uh, you to do it actually gives a great advantage to the United States because we can innovate in all these different areas. So it would allow you to put together the best components to assemble that 6G system. So it will reduce the cost and increase the speed. And, you know, they say speed kills, but really it's all about connectivity and speed for the future. For all those things you talked about, quantum computing and, and that, you, you need extremely fast speeds, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, quantum is, is the future. And um, it is such a strategic technology because um, this will change by orders and orders of magnitude. Uh, the speed and computation ability in many, many areas um, of computing. And it will change. Whoever owns quantum will own pharmaceuticals chemicals, weaponry, uh, cryptography, all these different areas. That's why I invested in, in quantum. And, and now, you know, it used to be way off of the Never Neverland, but, there, but now there's great progress. I mean, it's going to be here 
Um, and it allows you to do unbelievable things that people never even dreamed of. Okay, uh, getting near the end here, but I, I want to talk about climate change because that's, you know, a, a well-defined existential threat to our uh, ability to live and thrive on planet Earth. Uh, how do you see innovation uh, helping with solving our energy and climate issues? Do you think the solutions will come from, I, I'm, I'm in the, the climate adaptation piece. I mean, that's where I live because of disasters. It's really trying to adapt to it and mitigate against it. But do you see um, technology in energy and climate kind of rolling back the impacts of climate change or is it more the adaptation or how do you see that? Well, I see is innovation being the key to energy security and also uh, managing climate change. There's no doubt about it. It, it is all about uh, innovation. And we're seeing some dramatic things that are happening in that area. You know, it's just going to take a little bit of a while as we as we make that transition. It's it's like it's like threading a needle. Um, and whether you look at uh, what's being done in the solar business, wind business, by the way, the nuclear power business, you know, uh, great progress is being made uh with nuclear fusion and by the way that's safe nuclear energy and the only thing you need is good old h2o yeah um, and microgrids right i think yeah and microgrids you know that's also that focuses on the efficiency side as opposed as opposed to the power generation side so there's a lot of things in terms of efficiency um that can be done so um you know the bottom line is that um, innovation is the key to that. We've got to thread that uh, needle in terms of, you know, oil and gas. And you can see that in the Ukraine, right? I mean, um, you know, a few years ago, the uh, United States was the number one uh, uh, producer of oil and gas in the world. We were exporting energy. Um, and now we're buying it from Russia. And uh, so we've got to thread that needle. And, and I'm a big environmental guy, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, my role as Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, the way I looked at it was it was an optimization equation. It was maximize national security by uh, driving economic growth and, and optimizing energy, energy security um and also the health of the planet of course yeah, and you can do it you think you can do both right it's not one or the other as far as no it's not one or the uh, other at all we have yeah. to do both yeah yeah well i said throughout our conversation today i call you talked about the moral leadership and technology so i'd ask you to just kind of tie this whole thing up that we've talked about putting in a put a nice bow on it and talk about moral leadership and technology, because you've woven that into, you know, talking about our adversaries as opposed to where we are and what we're trying to do and uh, that, so. Yeah, you know, um, it's really an important thing. You know, it was interesting, Eric. So I got asked in my Senate confirmation committee hearing by Senator Coons. He asked me, what would be my strategy to combat China's economic aggression? And I said, I would harness U.S.'s three biggest areas of competitive advantage by unifying and rallying our allies and our friends, leveraging the innovation and resources of the private sector, and amplifying the moral high ground of democratic values, in essence, those trust principles. So if you look at what China and Russia has been doing, that's what we affectionately call the power principle concealment, co-option, coercion, human rights abuses, all of those uh, things. You know, if you think about it, Eric, if, if you're, let's say you're a CEO of a Silicon Valley company, I'm a Chinese company. And if I, if I can steal your intellectual property, I don't have to be transparent. I can use slave labor. I can use energy uh, or coal-fired uh, power plants, cheap energy, if I 
don't have to be reciprocal with my market. If I am the law and, and, or I don't have to obey the law, I'm going to beat you every time. And so the question is, is how do you compete against that? And that's where we came up with the trans, trust principle doctrine. Um, and what that allows you to do is maintain the moral high ground, not stoop to that level, but still win. And so if you look at this clean network alliance of democracies by unifying, then it puts uh, China and Russia in a catch-22. And by the way, the, the trust tenets of, of that doctrine, anybody can belong to this alliance. You just have to live and uh, pledge and live by those principles, fair principles. That's what everybody calls, you know, international rules of order. And if you don't, you're excluded from the market. So, you know, it's a catch-22. You either change those principles and live by those, or you're excluded from 80% of the market. But it's your choice. So um, I think that's one of the, the key things. And, and, you know, we use these uh, uh, trust principles uh, not just uh, for 5G, but for all areas of technology. We also used it in a thing that we developed called the Blue Dot Network, which is an equitable and unifying alternative to your one belt, one way toll road to Beijing. We also used it in, ter in terms of strengthening uh, US-Taiwan ties. When I went over to uh, Taiwan, I was the highest ranking State Department official to go there in 41 years. I was greeted with 40 fighters and bombers. And we put together uh, economic prosperity partnership because with Taiwan because they are a linchpin of democracy um, and they are a role model of freedom uh, for the rest of the world. Now to Xi, I mean, what they represent, they, they, they disprove his myth that the Chinese culture cannot be run with a democracy. It needs a dictatorship and he wants it gone. And, um, so these trust principles are key and it's really key in terms of technology because you know it can be used for good or bad. And so the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue is all about advancing uh, freedom through trusted technology and through global trusted networks based on these trust principles. Okay, so I, I said that was the last question, but I have an alibi <laughs> here. And since you brought up Taiwan, I got to ask. So Russia's, Putin's claim, in his head anyway, to uh, Ukraine is similar to uh, what China's claim is to Taiwan, traditionally part of the Chinese. That do, do you think China will eventually try to take Taiwan militarily? Well... You know, it was interesting, Eric, is on February 1st or February 5th, you know, right at the beginning of the Olympics, Putin and Xi signed a, a declaration. I call it a, a love letter where they both recognized that, you know, Russia's right to Ukraine and China's right, uh, right. to Taiwan. And then 20, 20 days later, at, right after the Olympics, that was part of the deal. Then you saw one of the most brutal, bloody uh, invasions uh, in a long, long time. And and by the way, she uh, he wants he wants that uh, Taiwan. He can either take it like he did Hong Kong, but Hong Kong, I, I mean, the Taiwanese have woken up when they saw the co-option of Hong Kong and how it's eviscerated its citizens' freedoms, or he's gonna invade. And, um, and so, the, you know, with the invade of the Ukraine, it's gonna in, in, increase the chances of it. And they love having those distractions and all that kind of stuff. So I, by the way, tomorrow in Fortune Magazine, uh, I have an op-ed coming out that is basically to the board, from the board of directors, to the CEOs, show me your China contingency plan at the next board meeting, because these these companies have suffered long enough. You know all this intellectual property theft, 
and you know subsidize and all that and now with she cracking down on the private sector as you mentioned and with the probability of taiwan you better have that contingency plan on the shelf and don't be caught without a plan like those 300 uh corporations that pulled their uh, uh businesses out of russia i mean it cost them all kinds of money all kinds of stuff i don't think anybody really had a plan on the shelf for it and no. So, no. so i think board of directors and what i'm seeing now is board of directors here and in europe are demanding of their ceos what's our china contingency plan you know in terms of uh mitigating this risk because that's the fiduciary duty of of board members and the most respected board members i know are, are requiring that from their ceo okay well i i just want to say thank you to keith crock businessman diplomat and now a philanthropist and patron for science for being a guest here on the disaster zone podcast thank you thank you so much eric i really appreciate being on it's been it's been great talking with you and i wish you all the best godspeed god bless america yeah and i, I just want to say you know a lot about a lot <laughs> from that standpoint but um you know technology is not the only solution for our futures but today we learned or could be a major component in how we make progress on a wide variety uh, of fronts and lastly a reminder to everyone be safe think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster or invasion, I guess you might say. And it would seem that you could include maximizing the technologies available now and into the future. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.